Well, good morning. Let's uh, pray before we start. Lord God, we, we come here this morning and we ask that you open our minds, that you open our, our hearts, that you open our ears to hear you. And we just ask that you move in every one of us here this morning, myself included, empower the preaching of your word and let us get a, a, a glimpse of what an encounter with you um, looks like and just how it can revolutionise our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, John and Charles were brothers. John was a bit of a snob. Charles was a bit of an obsessive-compulsive man and both of them were quite judgmental. But to most around them, they seemed to have it all together. They were both uh, brilliant scholars. They, they rose up the ranks of Oxford University until they were respected lecturers and fellows at the, at the university. They excelled in classical studies, in biblical languages, philosophy and, and logic. And they were set apart, earmarked by their parents at an early age to, to enter the priesthood, to, I guess, utilise their... Um, you know, scholastic prowess or um, gain a comfortable life for themselves. They both excelled at, at high church Anglicanism and they, they mixed with the haves of society rather than the, the haves-nots. But in the May of 1738, both of these men were having a severe crisis of faith. Both of them were broken men spiritually and physically. They both regularly preached the, the, the Christian message uh, that they were ordained priests in the, in the Anglican Church, yet when it came to passages about peace with God or assurance of salvation or a, a life-changing faith, conversion or renewal of the heart, the brothers quickly realised that something was lacking in their own lives. They had been taught and they were even teaching other people the fundamentals of the Christian life, yet they lacked the very experience of those fundamentals in their heart. What they believed did not marry up with what they were experiencing in their own lives. Now, don't get me wrong, they had an intellectual grasp of the, the concepts. Theologically, they could explain it all out. They believed them, they could explain them, but they lacked peace with God and assurance of salvation. That was the crisis of their faith. Now, it, it wasn't for want of trying. Every morning, these brothers, with a handful of other people, would start in the morning, 4am, each morning, and they were methodically set aside multiple hours throughout the day for prayer, Bible reading, reflection, preaching, going through the liturgies of the church. They both embarked on a, on a rigorous fasting regime that... that to the effect of damaging their health. They both excelled at good works. They gave generously of their time and their money. They both even volunteered to journey to the new American colonies as chaplains and missionaries, but that ended up in a total disaster for everyone concerned, for the, for the colonists and for themselves. And so by the spring of, of 1738, both of these brothers back in England were in a state of spiritual turmoil. Charles would later admit to a mentor that he was trusting in his own works 
for salvation. And John would go to write on in his journal, I went to America to convert the Indians, but who shall convert me? If you are familiar with church history here this morning, you'll know that I'm talking about John and Charles Wesley. They're, they're a set of brothers that would go on to, to transform church practices and, and preaching of the gospel, especially among the working, working classes, who at this stage were totally disenfranchised from the everyday church, which was more for the, for the gentry and those privileged. And if you're here this morning or if you're, you're watching online and, and you were raised in either a Methodist or a Wesleyan or a Salvation Army, a Pentecostal or Nazarene and even, even General Baptists like ourselves, you would have benefited from the teachings of, of John Wesley. And I can also guarantee nearly everyone here today, I'd say it's an extremely high percentage, even the general populace, populace of Australia has either listened to or sung a Charles Wesley hymn in the last month. If three weeks ago you sang Hark the Herald Angels Sing, you were singing a Charles Wesley song. But where we meet John and Charles this morning is a set of brothers who are going through a severe crisis of faith. And that's, that's the direction that I want to take us this morning. Are you going through a crisis of faith? Is there something in your life that you're taught to believe that no way equals up to what's happening in your life and as a result of that, you're doubting the benevolence of God? If so, then this is the direction I want to take, but we want to get to what's the remedy for that. So we'll leave the Wesleys for a, for a short time and then we'll concentrate on a biblical character that was, that was also going through a crisis of faith. Believe it or not, he was a worship leader in the temple. Such a, such a high position of, of closeness to God, of, of um, re responsibility to those around him, yet this person was struggling in his faith to the point of breaking. His name was Asaph and his song of crisis is Psalm 73 that we, we just heard read out. So if you, if you do have your Bibles, I ask that you turn to, to Psalm 73 and we're going to, to journey through um, Asaph's struggle but also his turning point and, and the result of that. And, and, he, and in working through this psalm, I, just, I really hope that we can glean some of these principles um, to assist us when we go through our own crisis of faith or if you're there now, this will, this will be pertinent to you. And you'll see that there's a, there's a general progression through the psalm. You'll see that there's a problem, a crisis of faith, and you'll see that there's a spiral, a spiral down. But you'll see, also see there's a turning point, and that turning point is an encounter with the living God, and there's a transformation, and from that, a refocus. That, that's, a, that's a general progression that this, this psalm takes. So I'm going to go through it. Um, we'll read the verse, different verses again. And, um, and, and see where the Lord leads us. Verse 1 there. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It's here, in this opening verse, that we see the problem for Asaph. The reason for his crisis of faith. He, he would have been taught from a young age that God's covenantal blessings would be poured out on faithful Israelites. He would have been taught that from a young age. And you can read through Deuteronomy, the, the blessings, the promises that God has for people who faithfully 
follow. Now, the word structure in this opening verse here is one of a, a creed or a, a, um, a statement of doctrine, if you like. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He was taught it and he was probably teaching it to others as part of his role in the temple. But now, that statement of truth was a problem for him. He was having his doubts. He was, what he was taught to believe about God wasn't marrying up to his life experience. Let's, let's read on there, verses 2 to, to 16. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I I'd nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. Evil conceits of their mind knows no limits. They scoff and they speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. And I've been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. And when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Asaph had a problem. But now he was in a tailspin. If God was supposed to bless the true Israelite, one who is, who is pure in heart, how do you account for the prosperity of people who are knowingly wicked and are flagrantly anti-God? Now, we're, wonder, we're under a new, um, a new covenant as New Testament believers here, but, but don't we do the same? Maybe like, you know, like me, you have asked yourselves at one stage or another, if God, if God is love then why does he allow so much suffering in the world? If God works together for the, for the good of his children called in Christ Jesus, then why a marriage breakdown or why the death of a loved one or why a bankruptcy, why a cancer, why COVID? You can fill in the blank with what your experience is. And that's the frame of mind that, that Asaph's in here. You can sense the seriousness of his words and they're written after the fact, so we know by him writing this he's come through it. But, but he writes here, my feet had almost slipped. I'd, I'd almost lost my, my foothold. It's, it's like he's saying, uh, that's, that's almost curtains for me, folks. I was so close to, to tapping out. You can really see his, the, the spiral down in the words uh, of this first half of the psalm. But, but he, did, he did do something right. He was able to identify and he was able to, to write down what, why unholy prosperity was a, um, a, an injustice for him. And you often find that when you're having a, a crisis of faith that there is something in your, your spirit or your, your, your psyche or your conscience that, that, that screams that, that something's not right. And, and I'd, I'd say that's, that's not a bad thing. I'd even say it's something, something godly, a kind of... You know, righteous indignation, if you will. Something's not as God has intended it, and you know it. And so Asaph puts down his issues on paper. He sees in the world people who are totally 
devoid of God, people, and you can see all the words he uses, totally apathetic, full of pride, oppressive, callous, arrogant, carefree. These people are seemingly experiencing the blessing of a good life that was supposed to be for the righteous people. Now, that, that's not right. It's, it's not reaping what you sow. It, it's, it's not fair. And if Asaph had just taken his sense of injustice straight to God then, he would have saved himself the spiral down. But as you can see, that the, the problems increased for him when he became envious of the good life that the wicked had and engaged in some se- severe self-pity. You can read in, in verse 3 there that, that he said, I envied the arrogant when I saw their prosperity. And over at verse 21, my heart was grieved, my spirit embittered. You can read in 11 to 14, surely in vain... I've kept myself on the straight and narrow. Oh, it's cumbersome, he says to himself. Every day is a challenge, it's a chore for me. You can almost hear him say through the text, what a waste of time this Christianity has turned out to be. Have you, have you been there? Have you been at that stage of crisis? Are you there now? I've been there. The Wesley brothers were there. They would have also appreciated... Asaph's words in verse 15 there, how can they publicly speak of their doubts or issues without hindering the faith of younger believers? It's something John Wesley struggled with a lot when he came to the realisation that he lacked what he was preaching. You can read in his journals the correspondence between himself and a a trusted uh, friend to this end, a man who would ultimately be used by God to sow gospel seeds in his heart. The Wesleys would have also joined in with Asaph in verse 16, saying, I tried to reason my way through the crisis, but it all became too oppressive for me. There's some things in the Christian journey, some crises that you go through that you just cannot think your way out of. And that's where we find Asaph at the end of a spiral down, spiritually, mentally, totally broken and oppressed. So what's the remedy? What's the remedy if you find yourself in such a situation? And it's the first half of verse 17 there. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. Asaph started with a problem, with a crisis of faith, and by shifting his focus off God to the good life of the wicked, he spiralled down, he became oppressed in mind and spirit. But here's the turning point. He entered the sanctuary and had an encounter with the living God that transformed him. And the whole psalm turns on this verse, the start of this verse. It's a a fulcrum point for the psalm. It was an encounter with God that changed him. Now, we don't know what the encounter looked like. I'm guessing it, it had to be something more than his usual duties in the temple. We simply don't know. It's probably best that we, we don't know, because if we, if we did know what it was, we'd be guilty, or tempted at least, to copy the experience rather than come to God with a surrendered heart. But, but what we do know is that in his oppressed state, in his turmoil, in his uh, mind that was struggling with seeing truth and reality come together, he sought the Lord and the Lord met him and transformed him. And I want to suggest to you this morning that if you are like Asaph, that you are to that stage of almost losing your foothold that you need an encounter with the living God. If you have a crisis of faith, you need to encounter the Lord. Such, a, such an encounter was transformative for Asaph. Let's, let's read on there. 
um, end of verse, uh, rest of verse 17 and, and following. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. In meeting God in, in the sanctuary, Asaph was able to see his crisis from a heavenly perspective. Now, previously, his focus was on the prosperity of the wicked, but now he can see the final destiny of the wicked in spite of their material prosperity, in spite of them living the good life away from God. Asaph thought that he was the one to lose his, his footing, but with his eyes open to the perspective of God, he was able to see that the ungodly are on the slippery ground. And as you'll soon see, he, he came to realise that prosperity has more to do with your relationship with God instead of the riches you possess. Now, a, a helpful way to, that, in my mind, to explain what sort of Asaph is getting here, I don't know if you have children here, um, but you, you may have seen the animated film uh, the, the Prince of Egypt, and it tells the story of Moses and the rescue of the Israelites from slavery, and there's a there's a song in that movie that, that sums up what Asaph has come to realise in these verses. It's a song where Moses is, is despondent, his world has fallen apart, and Jethro um, comes and, and sings his song to him around, around the campfire, and it really sums up what Asaph is trying to get out of these verses. The song, Through Heaven's Eyes, there's the following verses. How can you see what your life is worth or, or where your value lies? You can never see through the eyes of man. You must look at your life through heaven's eyes. How can you judge what a man is worth by what he builds or buys? You can never see with your eyes on earth. Look at your life through heaven's eyes. That's, that's what Asaph is, is getting at here. His encounter with God has caused him to see the destiny of a life opposed to God. And it's not just that, he also saw that he too was led astray in that process. And he uses some, some pretty strong words here to describe himself in, in verses 21 and 22, grieved, embittered, senseless, ignorant, a brute beast. That's, that's laying it bare. And it's the irony of Asaph's encounter with God that God unmasked him in the process. He came with an external crisis but ended up seeing himself as he really was before God, but in doing so, in doing so, God transformed him and answered his crisis. That Asaph even included this self-reflection in his song shows how important it is. And if we're honest with us, most of us, if we were a respected temple singer with people looking up to us, we would have you know, photoshopped that part out or airbrushed it, airbrushed it out, the, the part of laying ourselves bare, most of us would have gone, crisis with the world, connection with God, life is peachy. But, but Asaph laid it bare for all those who would come after him who would sing this song. And you can hear him say in the text, in encountering God, I too realised my precarious situation before him. I too was a man on a reckless path. But thanks be to God, he, he met me, he transformed me, he, he rescued me, he set me on a new path. And he answered my crisis. Let's, let's read on verses 23 and, and, and onwards. 
Yet I'm, I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? The earth has nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. What good is an encounter with God if it doesn't change your focus? It's, a, it's, a, it's absurd to think that you could have the living God transform your heart without a renewal of your mind. And remember the progression I, I talked about before, it's crisis, despair, encounter with God, transformation and refocus. And, and Asaph reaffirms to himself in these verses the definition of true prosperity, because that was the issue he was, he was going through. True prosperity is, is total dependence on God. It's, it's accompanied by a, a spirit of continued humility. Look at the, the phrases he uses. You hold my hand, you take me, you guide me. Whom have I in heaven but you? Earth is nothing I desire besides you. You're my strength, you're my provision, you're my inheritance. I want to be near you. You are my refuge. And that is how he's been transformed and his focus is now right now that it's happened, he wants the world to know, as that last verse says. Remember back in, in verse 15 how he was so apprehensive about uh, telling um, others, um, preaching to others, ministering to others. But now, as a changed man, at the end of his song, transformed by an encounter with God, he wants to tell those closest to him all the good things God has done for him. He himself is a living example of a change of heart. So I ask you, are you in a crisis of faith at the moment? Does it feel like you're losing your grip or your, your trust on God? Then please take hold of the principles of this psalm. In spite of the crisis, in spite of the spiral down, in spite of the mental oppression, in spite of the, the spiritual um, oppression, seek out the Lord. Allow him to transform your heart. Allow him to renew your mind. Allow him to show you your life through heaven's eyes. Let's uh, return to the Wesley brothers in, in closing here. And you'll, you'll remember that we, we left them, you know, like the brothers Grimm. They were, they were broken men, spiritually and, and physically. They knew that they lacked an assurance of salvation, the, the joy of a heart set free. They, deep down, they knew that they were trying to earn peace with God through their many religious endeavours. They hadn't truly taken hold of the, the grace of God in Christ alone through faith. And John, um, John Wesley, ever the pragmatist, thought, well, maybe I should start preaching the need to accept Christ by faith alone and see how it goes. And it, it's quite amusing that he would be seeking to preach this when he knows he himself doesn't have it. And so he chose his mission field the condemned prisoners at the local jail for an experiment. And I guess it was, it was smart on his path. He literally had a captive audience. And if it didn't work out, they'd be executed anyway, so I know feathers would be ruffled. But, but something amazing happened. God, in his grace, used the preaching of an unregenerate, unregenerate man 
to transform the heart of another unregenerate man. And John gives the account of the transformation in his journal. He, he says, after, after making the offer of salvation by faith alone over the course of a few visits, one prisoner knelt down in the dungeon in heaviness and confusion to pray. But then, to the amazement of John, this man arose and declared, I'm now ready to die. I know Christ has taken away my sins and there's now no condemnation for me. Now, that man was eventually executed, but he died with full assurance of salvation. And John shared the news with his brother, brother Charles. They were, they were very close to the brothers. But this only further exasperated them. They, they were in a severe crisis of faith, the crisis of faith that every person that we know today must come to either accept the gift of God's grace through Christ and let it change their heart or not. Well, it all came to a head in the May of 1738, first for Charles. Um, through a series of, of events, this snobbish Charles ended up in the home of a, a humble brass worker, a, a lower-class worker. But this man, and, and the funny thing is, Charles saw in this man something different, and he had the chance, to, he's very um, sick at this time, had the chance to go to a country estate for respite, but was asked to carry the couple of kilometres to this other person's house, a man who was born again through the power of God, who Charles said radiated Christ to him all the time. He was very unwell and for 10 days he, he suffered high fever. And when strong enough to read, he, he was drawn to Galatians 2.20. The Son of God loved me and gave himself me. And, and one night, ironically, it's Pentecost Sunday in that year, a lady within the house walked up to the, the Charles's bedroom door, stayed on the other side of the door, proclaimed in a loud voice, in the name of Jesus, arise and believe, and you shall be healed of all your infirmities. Now, this jolted Charles out of bed. He'd hear this loud voice booming the other side of the door. He would write in his journal, at first I thought it was even the voice of the Lord talking to me, but they eventually found out it was it was a lady in the house. But it jolted him out of bed right there and kneeling down in the privacy of his bedroom, he encountered the living God. And that night in his journal, he wrote, I have found peace with God and I know I stand by faith. Now, he sent the news to John, his brother, and, and John was happy, but this just highlighted his own misery. But John's turn would come three days later. He begrudgingly accepted an invitation to a, a nighttime Bible study. He had, throughout the day, done a series of courses of... He even preached. He'd done um, uh, multiple liturgies throughout the day. And towards the end of the day, someone asked him, come along to a Bible study. He didn't want to do it. He says it quite clearly in, he, in his journal. He begrudgingly went. But he accepted the invitation. And the leader of the group, a man who was born again by the power of God, was speaking on faith and reading some of Martin Luther's um, commentary on the book of Romans. And for some reason, that night, the words sank in. Something happened to John as the true nature of faith was explained to him, and he encountered the living God in that Bible study. And he wrote in his journal that night, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ... Christ alone for my salvation 
and assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins and that he had saved me. Both brothers, in their crisis of faith, in their mental turmoil, in their spiritual anguish, had encounters with the living God that totally revolutionised their life, totally changed who they were as people. They were, they were transformed and with a new focus on the mercy and the grace of God, they began a movement that took Christ to the working classes of the United Kingdom, then over to the newly independent America and on to the rest of the world. By the end of their lives, John had preached over 40,000 sermons and travelled over 400,000 kilometres on horseback as an itinerant preacher. To put that in perspective, that's around the same distance from Earth to the Moon. Charles, his brother, became one of the greatest hymn writers of all history, taking gospel truths and putting them into local tunes that everyone knows. He wrote over 6,000 hymns. To put that in perspective, if you sang a Charles Wesley hymn every day, just one, you would be ushering in 2038, 2038, before you started again, at the, at the start of his, his song list. Both brothers had a, a crisis of faith. Both had, had spiralled down to the depths of severe spiritual depression, but both had an encounter with the living God and they were transformed and renewed and both of them lived their lives for the glory of God. So I'll leave, you, I'll leave you here this morning with some challenges. Where are you regarding the crisis of faith that the gospel calls us to? If you have come to Christ in a crisis that nothing is right, have you come to him as a broken person? Have you come to him unmasked? Have you come to him realising that you can do nothing but surrender to God? Have you had an encounter with the living God? Has the righteousness of Jesus covered your sin so that you can stand in the presence of a holy God? Have you been transformed? You can ask yourselves these questions. Are you a new creation here today? You might answer, yes, 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 yes. Okay. Are you living it out? My prayer is that you come to God whatever your crisis is. So we're going to close this morning by, by singing... Uh, Charles Wesley's conversion hymn, a song that he wrote not long after he had that um, life-changing encounter with God. And I, and I, I want to um, really take in the last two verses of this, um, of this hymn and, 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 and sing it with all your strength. Charles Wesley, he writes, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine I diffused a quickening ray, I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread, Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ, my own. Let's pray this morning. Lord God, we, we want to encounter you. We want to surrender to you. We want you to, to transform us by the power of your spirit within. 
And we ask here this morning that, that despite of our crisis of faith, despite of the spiral down, we want to continue to seek you. We want to get the gospel message imprinted on our hearts so that we can have a life transformed. We ask that you meet us. We ask that you encounter us and that once we have encountered you, a renewal of heart, a renewal of mind, that we can walk following you, following the life that you have mapped out for each and every one of us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.